Welcome to Neary's PolicyCast, episode 62 for September 23rd, 2019. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute. Today, Turkey doesn't have the West, is exposed to its enemies, Russia and competitor Iran, and has no friends in the Middle East. It's more isolated, more alone, and more exposed to foreign policy threats than it has been for decades, if not centuries. That was Turkey expert Soner Shabtai, whose new book charts the course of modern Turkish foreign policy. Soner details the drifting apart of U.S. and Turkish relations, as well as the ways in which Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan represents both a revolution in Turkish foreign policy and deep continuity with centuries of Ottoman and Turkish strategy. After this. This is Gaith Al-Omari, Senior Fellow at the Erwin Levy Family Program on the U.S.-Israel Strategic Relationship at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and prompting the policies that secure them. Find all our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute. I'm speaking today with Soner Shabtai, Bayer Family Fellow and Director of the Washington Institute's Turkish Research Program. His new book, Erdogan's Empire, Turkey and the Politics of the Middle East, has just been published by IB Taurus. It's the third in a series on modern Turkey. Soner, welcome back to Near East PolicyCast. It's a great pleasure to be with you. You have recently warned that the future of U.S.-Turkish relations is, uh, quote, bleak, and that American and Turkish strategic views of each other have drifted apart. Before we get into the specifics and the current crises in the relationship, what's the strategic background for Washington and Ankara drifting apart? Uh, as I highlight in my new book, Erdogan's Empire, U.S.-Turkish relationship has been dramatically transformed in the last two decades uh, for reasons that have to do with Turkish policy and with American policy. And I would argue that the two countries' strategic views of each other has drifted apart, have drifted apart rather in the last uh, 15 years, uh, as a result of two wars in two of Turkey's neighbors, war in Iraq in 2003 and war in Syria that has been raging in that country since 2011 and 12. Why do have these wars shifted American and Turkish strategic views of each other? To put it very simply, in Iraq, America wanted to do a lot and Turkey wanted to do little. And in Syria, this time, Turkey wanted to do a lot and America almost nothing. That has shifted Turkish and American views of each other and simply putting into, taking into account, of course, the fact that these wars have not only uh, witnessed a complete opposite of Turkish and American views of what the policy ought to be in each war, but also the fact that they took place in two of Turkey's neighbors. And I think that lies, in my view, at the crux of the diverging views of America and Turkey, strategically speaking. In, in your books, you've, you've painted a picture of, of Erdogan uh, as someone who, who really sees Turkey as being much more of a Middle Eastern power than a Western power in or bordering on the Middle East. How much does Erdogan's view of his own country's role in his region and its power status play into these diverging policy views between the United States and Turkey? In my new book, Erdogan's Empire, I argue that in some ways Erdogan is, uh, Erdogan's foreign policy is a continuation of his predecessor's foreign policy. Turkey was an empire until uh, just about 100 years ago. The memory of the Ottoman Empire is quite fresh in Turkey. 
Romans used to measure time by what is called a seculae, which meant the number of years that had to pass between the time an incident occurred and all the people who were alive at the time of the incident passed away. By that measure, the Turkish Republic is not even one seculae old. Many people who were alive during the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, not so many, but at least a few of them are still alive. So the memory of the Ottoman Empire is very fresh. It resonates in Turkey. And Erdogan is often recalling that memory in his foreign policy. He's telling the Turks, you can become a great nation in the mold of the Ottomans again. In this regard, I do not think Erdogan is an unusual leader. Turkey's uh, uh, Ottoman and, and, and modern past in the 20th century helps explain a lot. Uh, the Ottoman Empire was a fast, powerful, super global entity that controlled uh, nearly 50 states. That's a quarter of uh, UN uh, member states today for nearly half a millennium. It had a painful collapse through the 18th and 19th centuries. Starting with the early 19th century, the Ottoman sultans, recognizing the weakness of their empire, decided to modernize and westernize it by copying European uh, element, institutions and also European idea of statecraft. The reason the Ottomans Europeanized and Westernized is because they re realized that uh, European powers were great at the time, and the only way to revive Ottoman greatness was to remake it in the mold of European states. So in some ways, Ottoman Westernization that we often think is a cultural project is really a strategic project. Hmm. It is driven by the Sultan's ambition to make the Ottoman Empire a great state in the mold of the uh, European powers. Ataturk, who established modern Turkey after these Ottoman attempts proved uh, fruit, uh, uh, not so conclusive, and after the empire collapsed at the end of World War I, Ataturk, who established modern Turkey, uh, is generally known to be someone who has who followed an inward-looking foreign policy. But even Ataturk's uh, well-known project to Europeanize Turkey, in my view, was also driven by the same strategic animus. Ataturk too wanted to make Turkey a great power again, and he copied European statecraft uh, and borrowed a lot from interwar France and other countries because those were the great powers of the time. In other words, Ataturk was westernizing and Europeanizing Turkey in order to make it great again. This is where I think Erdogan follows the sultans and Ataturk and Ataturk's 20th century successors. When Erdogan wants to make Turkey a great power, uh, there's nothing new about it. But as I write in Erdogan's empire, the model that Erdogan has picked is quite unorthodox in the context of nearly 200 years of Turkish history. How so? The sultans and Ataturk, as they tried to westernize Turkey to make it a great power again, they latched Turkey's security to a European or Western nation or alliance. The sultans in the 19th century uh, allied with the United Kingdom, informally though, Ataturk Soon as he liberated Turkey, pivoted Turkey's face to the West and joined a bunch of interwar pacts backed by then great power France. Turkey's leaders in the aftermath of World War II, after Ataturk died, latched the country's security to the United States and NATO. That's where Erdogan is different. He wants, as previous Turkish leaders did, to revive Turkey's greatness, but he doesn't have the patience for that greatness to return. He wants it to happen under his own clock, and he's also not interested in latching Turkey's security to a Western ally 
a European power or a Western bloc. So in some ways, he wants to make Turkey a great country as a standalone nation. And I uh, argue in Erdogan's empire, I argue in the end that that has not been quite successful for Erdogan. He has not really been able to make Turkey a standalone nation that after nearly decade and a half of Erdogan's foreign policy engagements, today Turkey cannot rely on the friendship of its traditional Western allies, US, Europe, or NATO. It is on top of it exposed to historic nemesis such as Russia and competitor such as Iran, and mm -hmm. is ironically also completely alone in the Middle East. Ironically, because Erdogan said about a decade ago, Turkey didn't need the West. It could become a star power nation in the Middle East. Today, Turkey doesn't have the West, is exposed to its enemies, Russia and competitor Iran, and does have no, has no friends in the Middle East. Uh, with the exception of Qatar, I would say today, Turkey has no friends and allies. So it's more isolated, more alone, and more exposed to foreign policy threats than it has been uh, for decades, if not centuries, taking into account patterns of modern Turkish history. Well, the view from Washington uh, is is very concerned about what appears to be growing friendship or cooperation between uh, Turkey and Putin's Russia. We see this in the uh, per the, the Turkish purchase of advanced anti-aircraft missiles, uh, the S-400 uh, air defense systems. And as a consequence, the United States has basically kicked Turkey out of the coalition that is uh, building and deploying the uh, F-35 advanced fighter. Is is Turkey's or, or is Erdogan's recent recent shift toward Russia a measured strategic choice, or is this something where Erdogan has painted himself into a corner and Russia's all he's got? I would say it's more of the latter. I think that the Turkish-Russian relationship that has historically been a, a um, asymmetrical one in which the Russians dominated has been reconfigured by Turkey's and Russia's involvement in the war in Syria. Russia has been Turkey's and Ottoman Empire's nemesis. By my count, uh, as I write in Erdogan's empire, the Russian Empire and the Ottoman Empire fought a dozen and a half campaigns after they became neighbors in the late 15th century uh, until the collapse of the Russian Empire with the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917. Guess who started all these wars? The Russians. Guess who lost all of them? The Turks. So there's a pattern here of historical asymmetry. Although the Ottomans won battles, overall, they lost these campaigns. And the story of the rise of the Russian Empire is the story of the demise of the Ottoman Empire. Many of the territories controlled by the Russians uh, or the Russian Empire in the past were Ottoman territory, starting from northern and southern Caucasus to Ukraine, Crimea, parts of southern Russia, and vast expenses. So there's a pattern here. And in this regard, Turkey's pivot to the West in the 19th and 20th century is as much driven by the vision of Turkey's leaders to revive Ottoman and Turkish greatness by copying Western statecraft as it is driven by a threat that the Turkish elites have perceived from Russia. In the 19th century, the Russians wanted to capture Turkish straits to have access to the warm seas of the Mediterranean. In the 20th century, another Russian leader, very different, had the same demand, exact same demand from Turkey in 1946, when Stalin demanded uh, the right to have Russian bases along the Bosphorus. Both of these moves pushed Turkey's leaders and Ottoman leaders to the West, 
in the 19th century, Turkey allied informally, Ottoman Empire rather allied informally with the British. In the 20th century, Turkey allied with the United States and with NATO. Turkey's plea to enter NATO in the late 40s was completely, if not entirely, driven by the Russian threat. Hmm. Now Russia has resurfaced as a major threat to Turkey in Syria, where Erdogan, I think through an ill-executed and ill-conceived policy, confronted the Russians and their allies, Assad regime, without securing uh, long-term, steadfast U.S. commitment to back Turkish policies. That, I think, is the problem, not confronting the Russians, but doing so without having America's and NATO's backing. And I think that has exposed Turkey to threats. Russia has taken advantage of Turkey's exposure to it in Syria and has used its policy to bully Turkey first and then to use uh, its uh, fear factor in Syria to force Turkey into ad hoc deals. In 2015, November, Turkey shut down a Russian plane that had violated its airspace from Syria. Putin threatened sanctions, threatened nuclear attack, uh, rather, uh, Russians simulated a nuclear attack against Istanbul, as I was told by friends in Turkish government. Putin uh, slapped hefty sanctions on Turkey. He also threatened to shoot any Turkish-backed forces or auxiliaries inside Syria. That meant complete undermining of Turkish policy where Turkey backed rebels to oust the Assad regime. But then the failed coup of, or the, rather the coup attempt of 2016 happened in Turkey, and Putin changed uh, course completely almost. He went from bullying Turkey to reaching out to Erdogan, realizing that the nefarious coup plot uh, was such a traumatic affair. Uh, Turkish capital Ankara uh, came under military attack during the coup by these nefarious coup plotters for the first time in centuries since the armies of Tamerlane occupied Ankara in 1402. You can imagine how traumatic that uh, attack was. Putin called Erdogan the day after, wished him well, and then immediately started to listen to some of Erdogan's concerns in Syria, allowing Turkey to go into Syria and to take territory from People's Protection Forces, a Kurdish group known as, with its initials as YPG, which is linked to another Kurdish group known as Kurdistan Workers' Party, PKK, the latter being a group on State Department's list of foreign terrorist organizations. And of course, this was a, a wonderful gift to the Turks, Russia said, you can go in to hurt PKK ally YPG. And of course, in return, Russia started to get parts of Turkey-backed uh, rebel-occupied uh, Syria delivered into the hands of the Assad regime. So these are ad hoc deals. But if you move along the trajectory, you come to a point where Erdogan is even willing to buy Russian-made S-400 system in return for Putin's continued uh, approval for Turkish troops to remain in Syria and to undermine the YPG. So I think Turkey is today cornered by Russia in Syria rather than being an equal partner to Russia in Syria. So by stepping as it has into Syria in the way it has, Turkey has given Russia leverage over it. Is there anything that Washington could or should do to change that calculus to either ease the leverage that Russia has or to introduce new leverage into that relationship? I would say the key to winning Turkey's heart goes through understanding and embracing fully Turkey's concerns regarding the PKK-YPG family. 
This is not only the PKK, a group on the State Department's list of foreign terrorist organizations, but also it has fought Turkey for nearly four decades, killed many security officials and hundreds, if not thousands, of civilians, from teachers to uh, babies who were killed in suicide bombings. There is near universal hatred in Turkey towards this group. And while Ankara, quote-unquote, understood that the United States had to work with YPG to fight ISIS because neither President Obama nor uh, President Trump wanted to put American boots on the ground, but they both wanted to defeat ISIS, and YPG therefore looked like a tactical but transactional ally. And I think Ankara was uh, eager to, quote-unquote, understand that. But it's harder for Turkey to understand continued cooperation with the YPG following the defeat of ISIS. Uh, we have to say, add that Washington has taken some really positive steps in this regard. There is currently an ongoing set of talks and even a process to set up what is called a safe zone in northeast Syria that would push the YPG away from the Turkish border, that would also see it hand its heavy weapons back to the United States. That's a really good step. I think that the United States can do two things to win Turkey's heart. One, uh, show to Turkey and demonstrate that it, its relationship, that's, that is Washington's relationship with the YPG was transactional and temporary, and it's over. And second, uh, give Turkey ironclad guarantees against Russian aggression. Uh, I think Turkey feels woefully exposed to the Russian threat, and it doesn't feel secure, and it knows that its nemesis has returned. And remember, Ottoman Empire and the Russian Empire fought 17 wars. The Russians started all of them. The Turks lost all of them overall. The fear in Ankara is that if there is an 18th war in, uh, with Russia, Turkey will be loser again. Turkey is doing everything itself to, uh, it can to avoid this conflict. And I think if the U.S. were to provide Turkey with ironclad guarantees, if Turkey did not feel itself overwhelmed by Russia in the security realm, it would uh, be more likely, of course, to uh, re rebuild its relationship with the United States. Is, is that rebuilding something that Erdogan can deliver on? Or is this uh, something where we're perhaps in a, a bit of a bilateral, bilateral holding pattern and the best bet for the United States would be looking to post Erdogan leadership someday? So I have a, a, a number of issues I look at in my new book, Erdogan's Empire. Of course, Turkey has nearly a dozen neighbors, so that means at least a dozen chapters, <laughs> uh, each of which is nearly dedicated to a neighbor from Cyprus and Greece and Bulgaria, across the Black Sea, Russia, Ukraine, and Romania, around the Caucasus, Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Georgia, to Iran, Iraq, and Syria in the Middle East. Uh, there, is, there is also, of course, uh, chapters in the book devoted to Turkey's uh, foreign policy in Africa and the Balkans, uh, engagement in Syria. But I wanted to end Erdogan's empire with a discussion of where I think Turkey's foreign policy is heading and where Turkish-U.S. ties are heading. I conclude that in the most likely scenario, Turkey is going to try to leverage its ties with Russia against its ties with the United States to get the, to get the most it wants in Syria. And so far, this seems to be working. Leveraging its ties with Russia, Turkey has been able to secure uh, parts of northwestern Syria, and now leveraging its ties with the U.S., Turkey is about to secure uh, parts of northeastern Syria. But uh, I also argue in Erdogan's empire that this leveraging policy is sustainable so long as Turkey's economy does well. Turkey can kind of leverage power blocks against each other. 
but Turkey's economy, unfortunately, has, been, has not been doing so well. And I think that limits Turkey's ability to maneuver between these power blocks. My fear is a scenario by which Turkey would be uh, uh, forced to fold under these power blocks, most notably Russia. Some people are worried that this has already happened. I do not think so. I think that Turkey is not a Russian ally or, uh, as some people call it, a facile state. I think Turkey is still trying to balance its relationship with Russia against uh, that with the United States. I do not think that U.S.-Turkish relationship will be restored to its state status or its uh, state before the rise of Erdogan, when Turkey considered America as its foremost ally and worked with the U.S. closely in a variety of areas. Uh, I also uh, think that it takes two to tango. And while uh, we should expect Turkey to uh, make a turnaround in the uh, relationship, of course, the U.S. too has to do its own part. So bottom line, as we're on the eve of what will uh, come to be known as the middle decades of the 21st century, what should be the overriding goal of American foreign policy towards Turkey? Are we just in a, a, a stage where our goal should be stopping things from getting worse, managing perhaps an inevitable divorce, or is it possible to rebuild perhaps in a different way, but the kind of relationship we have enjoyed through much of the last uh, uh, 70 years in particular? I think that the most realistic goal is to aim for managing a very difficult relationship, preventing ruptures. In this regard, uh, the policy of working with Turkey, uh, the policy for United States that is of working with Turkey in Northeast Syria, I think is a great step uh, forward. I also think that not everything is so bleak. I argue in Erdogan's empire that uh, while Turkish President Erdogan does not see Turkey as culturally or politically as part of the West, and that's why he's so different from his predecessors, Ataturk, Turkey's 20th century presidents, and Turkey's 19th century sultans, Erdogan is different from his predecessors because he does not see Turkey as part of cultural or political West. Erdogan is aware at the same time that Turkey relies on this West financially and in the security realm. Financially, because despite Erdogan's efforts to recalibrate Turkey's foreign policy and all the changes that have taken place, they have indeed taken place. Turkey cannot rely on the unconditional support of its Western allies. It's isolated in the Middle East, has no friend, is exposed to Iran and Russia. Uh, it's still clearly the case that Turkey's financial lifeline is its relationship with Western financial markets. Uh, majority of foreign direct investment that goes into Turkey is European. Uh, Turkey's majority trade partners, uh, uh, top trade partners rather, are still European countries and United States included. So clearly economic ties uh, uh, bond Turkey to the West. And then security realm, Erdogan is aware that uh, NATO is essential to Turkey's security, even with problems in U.S.-Turkish relationship. NATO is the umbrella that is preventing Turkey from being forced to fold under Russia. So I think he will cherish Turkey's membership in the security realm uh, in the Western alliance and its reliance on uh, the West financially. And I would say those are uh, leverage areas for the United States and for Turkey's European and NATO allies if they want to manage this relationship and hopefully also uh, up upgrade it uh, one day coming up.
I think that may be a, a more optimistic uh, <laughs> bottom line than, than many in Washington uh, would expect. So well, I, I hope so. I mean, uh, perennial optimists, so blame me for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations on, on the new book. Uh, we've been speaking today with Sonir Shabtai, a Bayer Family Fellow and Director of the Washington Institute's Turkish Research Program. His new book, Erdogan's Empire, Turkey and the Politics of the Middle East, is out now. You can follow Sonir on Twitter at Sonir Shabtai. That's spelled S-O-N-E-R-C-A-G-A-P-T-A-Y. Sonair, thank you so much for joining us today. It was my pleasure. Thank you for hosting me. This has been Near East PolicyCast from the Washington Institute. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at WashInstitute and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers. Please like and rate this podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to it to help others find Near East PolicyCast. Cast.